My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. So glad that you are joining me as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26. This is where the crucifixion and the end of Jesus' time on this earth is coming to a close. Jesus has finished teaching everybody that he wants to teach about end times. He's told the religious leaders, he's told the disciples, this is what's going to happen. And now that teaching time is over, and now it's time to fulfill the work on the cross. So let's start Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So this is his statement. I'm not teaching you anymore. Uh, uh, This is now about go time for me, the reason that I came. After two days, I think this would have been a little surprising to the disciples because in the previous chapters, he's just told them about him him coming back in this triumphant return. And I think it would have been a little bit of conflict about how he's talking about a triumphant return. Them not thinking that's going to be like 2000 years later, them them not trying to wrap or or they're trying to wrap their heads around it. And I think they may have even struggled to believe that it was impossible for this Messiah to even suffer, let alone be crucified. But Jesus just reminded them bluntly, I've been telling you over and over and over, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Jesus said it repeatedly about what, how it was all going to play out. Verse 3, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, because it's the feast of the Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, the the there's two words that are used here uh, that translate into the English words assembled and the word plotted. And they point us to the prophecy from uh, the psalm, Psalm 100, uh, sorry, sorry, Psalm 31, verse 13, talking about the coming Messiah. For I am the slander of many; fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. This is Psalm 31, playing out 1,500 years after it was written. And then you've got this high priest Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is a very interesting character in all of this narrative. Uh, There actually was another high priest who should have been the high priest at the time. His name was Annas. Let me read to you a quote from Carson. Annas was deposed by the secular authorities in AD 15. So that's about 15 years before this, you know, 18 years. He was replaced by Caiaphas, who lived and ruled until his death in AD 36. So only a few years after this, these events, Caiaphas died. I'm going to get to how he died in a minute. But since according to the Old Testament, the high priest was not to be replaced until after his death, the transfer of power from Annas to Caiaphas was actually illegal. And doubtless some continued to call both Annas high priest and Caiaphas high priest. That's why it says in the Bible, 
the high priest who was called Caiaphas. Normally, there wouldn't have been any confusion about who that was. Now, what's interesting is about two years after Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate were both deposed by somebody by the name of Vitellius. He was the, the governor of Syria. And, and then afterwards that he actually became the emperor. And Caiaphas, who just couldn't bear the disgrace of being deposed, uh, and was struggling with what was on his conscience about Jesus, actually committed suicide. He killed himself two years later in AD 35, 36. And isn't it interesting that the, the, the people that betrayed Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus, took his own life. Caiaphas really betrayed Jesus, took his own life. Why? Why do they do it? Because that's the devil's tactic. He gets you to do something that he knows in the future he can hold against you where you won't even feel worthy to live. And I see that with the devil right now. It, people who have uh, suicidal thoughts, thinking about some things that they've done and some things that have maybe been the fruit of what they've done and then thinking, I can't live with myself. I don't deserve to be here. That's exactly the way the devil wants you to think. It's not who Jesus says you are and it's not what Jesus says about you. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Jesus comes to give you life. He never comes to suggest death ever. And what's interesting is that neither Judas nor Caiaphas ever got to a point of repentance and saying, I'm sorry, God, because there was still a way for them. Jesus made a way for Judas and Caiaphas as much as he did for anybody else, but they didn't take him up on it. Now, the religious leaders said, let's plot and, and twist whatever we can to kill Jesus, but we can't do it during the Passover feast because there's a lot of people here and he's a pretty popular figure. Uh, they didn't want, they didn't want that to happen. Uh, which really gives us an indication that Jesus was the one in control here. Because they ended up killing him on the very day they did not want to kill him was the day that he was ended up being killed. And uh, so it wasn't playing out for them. Okay, let's move on to verse 6. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, flask, sorry, <laughs> an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head and he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. But me, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, we know that the, the woman who poured this oil from John chapter 12 was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and, Ma and Martha. Now, some people think that Simon the leper and Lazarus are the same person, uh, which is if, and also when you read John 12, you, it, it, it tells us about Lazarus. Lazarus was there when this happened. Whether he was Simon the leper or not, we're not quite sure, but he was there. Lazarus, resurrected Lazarus, was there watching his sister pour the oil on Jesus' feet. Now, I think probably with good reason, understanding what Lazarus had just been through, dying and then being resurrected, understanding the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The thing with Lazarus is that eventually he was going to go on and die again, but Jesus was not. 
So that's the difference between the the Lazarus being raised from the dead versus Lazarus being resurrected. Somebody who's resurrected doesn't die again. Somebody raised from the dead does. And that was a very important point that I think Mary realized as she was anointing Jesus' feet. And it was a very extravagant display of emotion and love to Jesus. Guzik says there is some debate and confusion about the anointing of Jesus and those mentioned in Mark, Luke and John. The best solution seems to be that Matthew, Mark and John record one occasion of anointing in Bethany and Luke records a separate event that took place in Galilee. So uh, just as you research this particular event. Now, what is an alabaster flask? Jewish ladies often wore a little alabaster flask uh, as a perfume flask. It was suspended in a cord around their neck. And it was so much a part of them that they were actually able to wear it on the Sabbath. It wasn't considered jewelry uh, on, on, uh, on the Sabbath. So when the disciples said, why this waste? Why did they say that? They actually criticized this display of honor and love for Jesus. And the most uh, critical of the disciples was, believe it or not, Judas. We read about him in John chapter 12. But Jesus defends Mary as an example of somebody who's doing an extravagant good work for him. Jesus says she's going to be remembered wherever this gospel is preached, which is an amazing statement that he he never said about anybody else. Um, Carson said this, what the disciples call waste, Jesus calls a beautiful thing. Spurgeon, is anything wasted which is all for Jesus? It might rather seem as if all would be wasted, which was not given to Jesus. So Jesus says, you will have the poor with you always, but you won't have me always. Jesus wasn't saying this to discourage us from trying to uh, help the poor. Uh, His recent words about the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25 had basically encouraged people to be kind to the poor and those in need. And Jesus points to the nature of this moment to honour him in a very extravagant way. There is an understanding for us, however, that Jesus did say, the poor you will have with you always, and trying to eradicate and make everybody rich is just never going to work. Uh, And that is because human nature, free will comes into it. Some people, not all people, not all people, some people are poor because of poor choices that they make. Some people are poor because it's got nothing to do with their choices. It's just the circumstances they were born into. And Jesus says we should always have compassion for them regardless of whether they were born into it or it's their own decision making. But there is a reality that we can't eliminate it. So if we can't eliminate it, it should never be our number one priority. Our number one priority should always be to share the good news of the message of Jesus Christ, which is the hope of salvation for eternity. Because it's no good somebody being turned from being poor on this planet to being wealthy or rich on this planet if they still end up with their eternity in hell. Then we've done no eternal good for them whatsoever. So... Spurgeon said this about Mary's act. The beauty of this woman's act consisted in this, that it was all for Jesus. All who were in the house could perceive and enjoy the perfume of the precious ointment, but the anointing was for Jesus only. Jesus said, she did it for my burial. Even if Mary herself didn't understand the full significance of what she was doing, her act said something that she understood more than what the disciples understood. Jesus had told the disciples, but it was like they just refused to believe it. 
She gave Jesus the love, the attention that he deserved before he was about to go through this incredible suffering. And she understood more because she was in the place of the greatest understanding. Where was she? She was at the feet of Jesus. When you're at the feet of Jesus is when you have the greatest understanding of Jesus. Guzik, kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. Each of these would have been true in the case of Jesus, yet he claimed that she anointed him for his burial. Spurgeon, she probably did not know all that her action meant when she anointed the Lord for his burial. The consequences of the simplest action done for Christ may be much greater than we think. She thus showed that there was at least one heart in the world that thought nothing was too good for her Lord and that the best of the very best ought to be given to him. So then Jesus says these interesting words. What this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. What Mary did was incredible because her motive was a pure and loving heart to her Saviour. It was remarkable in that she did it for Jesus only. It was unusual. It was extraordinary. And Spurgeon said this about what she did. And this, I think, is an amazing quote. All those who have done wonders for Christ have always been called eccentric and fanatical. Why? When George Whitfield first went on Bennington Common out in the open air to preach because he could not find a building large enough, it was quite an unheard of thing to preach in the open air. How could you expect God to hear prayer in the open air if there was not a roof over the top of people's heads? How could souls be blessed if the people did not have seats and regular high back pews to sit in? George Whitfield was thought to be doing something outrageous. But he went and he did it. He went and broke the alabaster flask on the head of his master. And in the midst of the scoffs and the jeers, he preached in the open air. And what came of it? A revival of godliness and a mighty spread of religion and love for Jesus. I wish we were all of us ready to do something extraordinary for Christ, willing to be laughed at, to be called fanatics, to be hooted and scandalized because we went out of the common way and were not content with doing what everybody else could do or approved to be done. And to that, I say yes, 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 amen, 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 and amen over and over and over again. Then one of the 12, Judas, we learn in John chapter 12, says, no, this extravagance, too much. This is the last straw for me. Uh, it's the final insult. And, and after him watching Mary do that, show her extravagant love, knowing that he's already, he's already had conversations with the religious leaders. He knows what he's all about. He's just internally ripped to pieces. Um, And he was determined to make it this time. Even though the religious leaders said, we can't do it at this time. We can't do it during Passover. Judas was so mad at what Mary had done that he goes and starts the chain reaction. So this is a matter right now that we're going to read about in the next couple of verses. Let's read about it in verse 14. One of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. 
not, actually not a lot of money. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, uh, what's the motive of Judas? People have looked about there. What, what drove him to betray a man that he'd seen the miracles? He'd seen all the things that Jesus had done. He'd heard all the things Jesus said. He'd listened to the teaching. He had a first-hand account of watching it all. Why? Why would he turn on Jesus? What's his motive? Uh, Matthew in, in chapter 10 verse 4 calls him Judas Iscariot, which actually uh, means that he could have been from a, a Judean town, um, which is southern Judea, and the rest of the disciples were from the north. And maybe he just had enough being the only Judean in amongst all these Galileans and, and just saying, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I don't know. Perhaps he was disillusioned with the type of Messiah that Jesus was revealing himself to be. Maybe he wanted a political conquering Messiah, not one who was going to die on a cross. Maybe he was watching the ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders and he's thinking, oh, I think Jesus is losing. I think the political and religious leaders are winning. I'm going to choose the winning side. Maybe he came to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't the true Messiah. Maybe he was just a prophet. Maybe he wasn't even a prophet. Um... Maybe he had a noble motive. That, that doesn't get talked a lot about. Maybe Judas was, you know, of, of the, of the desire that, you know what? I've got to speed this up. I've got to make, I have to make sure that Jesus the Messiah actually does die on a cross. Uh, maybe he got impatient and thought that he'd forced Jesus to do it before the time. I don't think that is the case, to be honest with you, but I'm just offering it. Uh, whatever the reason, there was no reluctance from Judas whatsoever to betray Jesus. And he only had one motivation that is revealed in Scripture, and that is greed. And the words stand, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. There was no noble intention in Judas's heart. His motive was money, and the price actually wasn't very high. It was, it was really, 30 pieces of silver was not a lot of money. 30 pieces of gold would have been a lot more money. 30 pieces of silver, not much. Uh, it was a very small amount. Uh, Trap says this, 30 pieces of silver was a known set price for the basest, lowest level slave in Exodus 21, Joel chapter 3. For so small a sum, this satyr, traitor, sold so sweet a master. Spurgeon. Even though... Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of, of silver, yet many have sold Jesus for a less price than Judas received. A smile or a sneer has been sufficient to induce them to betray their Lord. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Verse 16. How wonderful for Jesus to have Mary in the middle, he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows his disciples are going to desert, desert him. And here's this woman anointing his feet. She gets it. She gets it. She listened. She listened to what Jesus said. The disciples didn't always listen. And if they did listen, they certainly weren't hearing what he was saying. Even if she didn't understand the full significance of preparing him for burial, um, May we have the same determination as Mary to do whatever needs to be done in the face of ridicule, in the face of people saying, why are you doing that? That's ridiculous. 
May we have that same determination to say, no, I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus and I'm doing what Jesus needs me to do. May we have that same drive that people like George Whitfield had. Says, what, what do you mean I can't have an open air? If that's the way I need to reach more people for Jesus, I'm going to do it. What's he asking us to do right now that's out of the ordinary? That's something extraordinary. Maybe he's asking you to do something. I don't know. Maybe that's part of your observation today is that Jesus is asking you to do something extraordinary and you're thinking the first thought that goes through your head is, well, what will everybody think? How about you and I stop worrying about what other people think and we just worry about what what our master thinks? If we're sitting at his feet, we won't care about what anybody else says. We'll only care about him. We listen to Jesus and we'll do what he tells us to do and we will be just like Mary a servant at the feet of Jesus who is willing to do something extravagant. I love that word. Maybe that's the word for this, extravagant. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Mary, the the, the sister of, of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. And thank you for Jesus' determination during this time to continue through with your heavenly plan, our Father, that you had for the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.